I want to briefly um, just touch base on something that uh, our presider said that um, was, you know, we didn't get to fully connect with. But um, I want to say hello to uh, Brother Matthew. And is your family here with you also? Yeah, the whole family's there. Uh, can you guys just stand up real quick? I, we don't usually do this, but we'll do it today uh, for you guys. Let's give them a round of applause. Um, they're... Um, Serving, they, they've been serving faithfully for many, many years in Asia, um, in some, some really challenging places, um, places where we've got folks on the ground as well. And so uh, if you want to know, hey, what's life like there or how is, um, you know, how are harvesters that we know doing out there, please do talk to them. I'm sure they would love to answer um, any questions that you might have as um, you approach them after worship service. That would be cool. Uh, I don't know if you've been following this in the news, but... Um, I, this is definitely big news in, in Christian circles, but I think it's also big news in, uh, in other circles as well. I, I think it was on Fox News and CNN and, and all the different major outlets picked up at least on, on part of this. But in recent weeks, in the last couple of weeks, there have been uh, two high-profile Christian leaders who have come out and said either um, I'm no longer a Christian or... My faith has gotten to a point where I don't think, uh, I don't think it, it, it's something I can follow anymore. Um, these are, I mean, huge, huge, huge things. Joshua Harris, who, when I was in college, wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye, pastored a church of over 3,000 people up in Maryland, um, senior pastor of that congregation, uh, moved out to Vancouver, Washington, uh, British Columbia, and uh, recently said, hey, I'm no longer with my wife, we're divorced, and for all intents and purposes, every definition you can give of a Christian, um, that's not who I am anymore. And then last week, uh, Marty Sampson, who's a worship leader at Hillsong Church in Australia, wrote some of the songs that we sing, um, recently came out and he said the same thing. And it's kind of caused a, a lot of conversation. And people are saying, well, this is what's wrong, right? This is why they, they, they gave their faith up. This is why they're no longer following Jesus. And, and we come from an understanding of Scripture. It says if you are a child of God and you've been saved by God's grace, um, then he won't let you go. You won't lose that salvation. And so um, there's a lot of different uh, thoughts going around. And maybe it's because they, um, they got too famous too fast or maybe they didn't have good mentors around them or they didn't have a good community around them. Maybe it was because of the fact that uh, in our culture today, we value emotions and experiences more than the truth of God's word, and, and that's why things like this are happening. There's a lot of different reasons, and there's a lot of different tentacles that are sticking into this, uh, these decisions that were made. But the question that we have to ask is, if these are Christian leaders okay, who have walked away from the faith that we embrace here, then what about us? What's keeping us and what's going to happen to us when our faith is put to the test in ways like that? There's an article. One of our guys, um, Sean On, sent me an article from a man named David French. who was in the National Review this week talking about these two people. And this was his premise because a lot of people are saying, it's because we don't know theology. It's because we don't have biblical knowledge. It's because we're all about feelings and emotions and that's what our Christianity is so that when our intellect gets attacked, we don't have the defenses for it. A lot of people are saying that, but what David French said was as he travels throughout America, visits with Christians, meets with different people, he says, to me, it's clear that it's not about a lack of knowledge but it's a lack of courage because in a changing cultural climate in America, it is becoming increasingly difficult for Christians to stand courageously for what they believe in, even though the persecution is not physical, it is social, and it affects our workplaces, and it affects our standing in, in, in social uh, stra uh, status 
as well. And he's saying, that's the challenge here. It's not for lack of conviction, but it's for lack of courage that people are falling away now. That in the circles in which they run, the Christianity that they embrace and the Christianity that says, I believe in the Bible, I believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation, I believe that there is a traditional view of marriage that says it's one man and one woman alone, that these things are no longer standing in the cultural climate of America and it is easier for people to give up all of that than to stand in the face of adversity and say, this is what I believe in. And the upshot of the article is saying this will happen more and more. Our faith will be challenged and it is incumbent upon us to stand courageously but also to raise our children and the next generation in order that they might be able to stand for their faith in the midst of attacks against it. Today what I want to do as we look at this and ask this question, how big is your God? Is I want to look at three young men in a Babylonian empire 2,500 years ago whose faith was put to the test in the same way that our faith is being put to the test in worse ways than our faith is being put to the test today and see how they stood by seeing and demonstrating the greatness of their God in the midst of the challenge that, that were to come. We're going to read from Daniel chapter 3, but I want to kind of uh, bring us uh, up, up to par here. The Babylonian Empire was a major empire at that time. It was, they were dominating the Middle East, uh, what's now known as the Middle East, and they were just gobbling up different countries and taking them into uh, part of their, their kingdom and part of their empire. And one of these was a tiny little country, a tiny little nation called the Israelites, which was the people of God. And so in 586 BC, Babylon comes and they conquer Israel. They destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple. And the best of the best of Israel, okay, their military leaders, their officers, their political people, uh, their professionals were taken into Babylon in order that they would be indoctrinated. That means they were brainwashed so that out with the Jewish teachings of Scripture and in with the Babylonian teachings of their culture and these uh, the, 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 the elite of Israel would then be reprogrammed so that they could serve the Babylonian interests. Okay, that's what's happening. Amongst these group of people were four in particular, a man named Daniel, for whom this book was written after, and Shadrach, Meshach, or who, whose uh, uh, namesake is the name of our book, and then his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And if you've ever seen Veggie Tales, Rack, Shack, and Benny, it's these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, young men, upstanding, uh, faith in God, but excellent at what they did. And so they were brought into exile. The king of the time was a man named Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar was a bad man, but he saw the goodness of these men and the excellence with which they worked, and so they got promoted to higher positions and higher positions and higher positions, and things were going pretty well as they worshiped God in Babylon. However, there were a group of people who were not happy with Rack, Shack, and Benny, and they began to actually get really jealous that they were being promoted and seen in a good light. And so they said, we've got to bring these guys down. And the way that they thought to do that was by attacking the one thing that they could uh, attack, which was the, gods that the God that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego worshipped. They said, the only thing that we have against them is that they worship their God. So let's use that against them. And so they said, we're going to create a big statue Right? And that's going to represent Babylon, and everyone's got to bow down and worship this thing. Okay? This is where we pick up in uh, Daniel chapter 3, starting in verse 14. We're going to go to verse 25. Okay? So um, everyone is supposed to, when the music plays, okay, when the music plays, they've got to drop and they've got to worship uh, that statue. Verse 14 says, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up. Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. And Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach. Meshach and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent And the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Hold up! Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, O king. He said, Look! I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. This is God's word. This is amazing, beautiful passage, something that happened in history 2,500 years ago in modern-day Middle East in Babylon. So what's happening is King Nebuchadnezzar creates this 90-foot high, okay, about four stories high by nine feet wide. Okay, this is a 10-to-1 proportion. If you think about it, if you've ever been to Washington, D.C., and you've been on the, uh, on the National Mall, this is the Washington Monument. That's the exact proportions. It's a 10-to-1 ratio. Washington Monument was about five and a half times bigger than Nebuchadnezzar's statue. So if you shrink Washington Monument down and cover up in gold. That's basically what's being thrown into the center of Babylon. And so here's what we have to do. In order to appease the king, when the music plays, everybody drops and they worship that statue. Okay? And so that's what everyone is supposed to do. The, the commentators say there's probably about 100,000 people who've come into Babylon during this time. So 100,000 people hear the music and they drop and they begin to worship, but there are three who remain standing, who will not bow down and worship. Because you see, at the heart of all of this, how do we stand for God in the midst of a cultural climate that is fighting against us? How do we swim upstream against a climate that is moving downstream so quickly? How do we do that? It has everything to do with our worship. In chapter 3, 11 times the word worship is used, and in the passage you just read, four times worship is used. In fact, what's happening here is a blatant and outright attack against the worship of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so as we talk about how do we stand for God in the midst of this kind of a world, I want to talk three thoughts about worship. Here's the first thing, that your worship will be tested by the fire. Okay? Your worship 
will be tested by the fire. And maybe I need to say your worship must be tested by the fire. Okay, here's our reality. Whether you like it or not, your faith, your worship of the true and living God will be put to the test. It will be tested in some way, shape, or form, and you have to understand that it will be tested because if you're not aware that your faith will be tested, then when it comes, it may overwhelm you. Knowing that the test is going to come, we do much better on tests that we study for than on pop quizzes, don't we? Because we know that it's coming, and in the same way, there will be a testing of our faith. It is clear as day that your faith will be tested. In fact, it says that throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, fiery trials are coming, First Peter says, constantly being reminded that our faith is going to be put to the test. Understand this. It's easy to worship. It ought to be easy to worship when it's easy to worship. When we're in here, guys, it ought to be, this ought to be practice for worshiping when it's difficult. It's easy to worship here. Everyone else is worshiping God. It ought not be difficult, or if it is difficult, then we need to push ourselves to put ourselves in uncomfortable places so that our worship might reflect the greatness of God. It's easier in here to worship when there is no cost to it. For you to stand and worship God here in the midst of everyone else who is in in unanimous agreement that we're worshiping the same God, it's not difficult. It ought not to be difficult then to lift our hands to worship or to to, to be moved emotionally if we're moved to tears because there is no cost here. Maybe it'll be like someone laughing at us and saying, "Uh uh-huh, why are you raising your hands like that? That's the cost of worshiping God in here, but in here it's really not that hard. A few years ago for Christmas, one of our brothers gave me this bracelet during the time when uh, Christians were being slaughtered throughout Syria and, and uh, through ISIS, and it, it basically says, I am one of them, and it says, I will not let them suffer in silence, and I will not let them serve alone, and so this reminds me that there are brothers and sisters who are paying the ultimate cost even now in order to worship God. That's not our situation here. We're worshiping God. We can lift our voices as loud as we can because there's no fear that people are going to hear us and arrest us. We can lift our hands because the worst that can happen is someone laughs at us or makes fun of us. But it's easy to worship God here. But in Babylon, there were 99,997 people who did not worship God. When they all fell to the ground to worship the gods of Babylon, there were three who were still standing. The question is, if we were in Babylon today and everyone else worshipped other gods, would you remain standing in the worship of our God? Even in some cases here, if we're seated here for worship and our praise leaders go up and say, okay, we're just going to sing a song right now, okay, we're going to sing a song and everyone else is sitting down, if you wanted to stand up in your heart of hearts, that's what it means for you to worship God. Even for you to stand in the midst of all these people here who are worshiping God, for you to stand if everyone else is sitting, even that is difficult. But imagine the cosmic level pressure against these three men when everyone else is worshiping other gods for them to remain standing to say, I'm going to worship my God because I believe he's bigger than life itself. That was the call on the hearts of these young men here. So what's happening in Babylon? Okay, you remember Babylon was like the hungry, hungry hippo empire. They're, they're consuming all these other empires, so all these other nation states and, and other people are coming in. So it's become a very pluralistic 
and relativistic place. That means you can have your truth as long as you let other people have their own truth. So the statue that was erected was not one particular god. Okay? It represents Babylon itself. It represents, I'm pledging my allegiance to Babylon and all that it represents. In other words, <clears throat> when he says, I want you to bow down and worship when the music plays, he's not saying, give up your gods and come and worship the Babylonian god. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you can have your gods, but when the music plays, just come and worship this god also. Let me put it down in still other words. You can take your faith in God, but just keep it private. When you come into public, though, come and worship the gods of Babylon. That's what was at stake. He wasn't saying abandon your God. He's just saying have that God and have our gods also. This is the pressure that's being played out because as soon as you get out of church, you'll hear the music playing and it will call you to bow down to worship the gods of Babylon. What does that look like? It says, hey, you can have your Sunday worship, okay? You can do whatever you want on Sunday, worship your God, but as soon as Monday comes and you come into school, then, hey, don't let that affect how you live at school. Okay? You can cheat. You can curse, just don't do that on Sunday, that's fine, but you can do whatever you want. You can mess around with the boys and girls at school, you can talk about the stuff that people talk about, you can gossip about other people, you can put whatever you want into your body, that's cool, but just, just make sure you do that. You can still have your Sunday, but you do whatever we tell you to do on Monday through Saturday. That's what it means to bow down to the gods of Babylon, and a lot of people are doing that. Here's what it means for those of us who are out of school. It means you can have your Sunday worship, but, as long, but when, once you come into work, okay, once you get into your home, you do whatever you want. You don't have to let that have a bearing on how you treat your wife or how you raise your kids or how you go to work. Okay? You can sing that all I have is Jesus and all I need is Jesus, but when you get into work, make it all about money. Make it all about career. Make it all about advancement. Make it all about these things. Step on other people, and when you come to church, you can be nice. That's what it means to bow down to the gods of Babylon. And that's the pressure in our hearts as well. Yeah, you go have your Sunday thing. Just don't get too crazy on us. You can have your gods that you worship, but during the rest, don't let that affect your public life. And many of us have fallen for that hook, line, and sinker. And we wonder why it's so difficult for us to worship. How big is your God? Is he big enough to stand in the face of 99,000 other people who have bowed to other gods? Will you remain standing? It was only three people who stood for God. What's at stake for them? Yeah, I mean, definitely there's this social aspect. There's peer pressure. When, uh, when we have our, our family worship or we pray together as a family before a meal or whenever it is that we pray before uh, they go to bed or uh, whatever context it is that we pray, um, oftentimes I have to keep my eyes open because they're going to mess around. Like Olive is going to hit the kids. Or I'm just kidding. <laughs> the kids will start hitting each other. They'll start playing or messing around. So last year at school when Elise was four, she learned, that, I forgot why she said this to Olive, but she looked at Olive and she said, Mommy, she did like this. <laughs> I see you. I don't know why she did that. But sometimes during prayer, right, I say, listen, I'm going to keep my eyes open to make sure that you guys are praying. 
because I think Daddy can concentrate when my eyes are open, but I don't think you can right now. And so I say, I'm going to pray with my eyes open. And as I pray, I'm looking at them, and they're like peeking and winking and seeing if I'm looking at them. And almost every time, probably about, you know, 80% of the time, I make eye contact with Elise. And then she quickly closes her eyes. And so she's just waiting, waiting, waiting. She's going to get in trouble after we say amen. So we say amen. And I look at Elise. I say, Elise, why did I see you? Why did you see me? And immediately she says, because Unni, because Manny, or because Elijah was laughing, or because they were picking their nose, or they were giggling, or something like that. It only takes one person to sidetrack her from her vision of what she's supposed to be doing as it relates to the worship of God. Just one person. She has to grow to become strong, to become courageous in the face of 99,997 others who are bowing down and compromising and trying to get us to worship other things. There was a social pressure to just bow down and worship. Not only that, but Nebuchadnezzar was their boss. Yeah, there's definitely, your job is at stake here. If you don't listen to what he's saying, Okay, you don't listen to what he's saying. Your job is on the line there. Will you stand for God if it affects your life at work? I mean, a lot of times we say, oh, you know what, that's, you know, you're, you're taking this a little bit too far. But haven't you heard of people who took a stand for Christ? And don't you think that God can take care of you if you do? I can't stand up to my teacher. I can't do that. I can't say what we really believe about Jesus, about God. I can't do that. But at a certain point in time, our worship is going to be tested. Our faith is going to be put to the test. And the question is, is our God big enough at that point in time? Is our God big enough for us to take that step and take that stand in faith? Here's what C.S. Lewis says. He says, uh, uh, let, me, let, me, let me think if this is um, the best way to say it. Um, he says, courage is, what every, is, is, is the point in every virtue, right? Every virtue when it's put to its ultimate test. In other words, you don't know you're virtuous, until that virtue is put to the test. A soldier who's going into battle might think, oh my gosh, I've been through basic training, I've been through all of this stuff, I'm brave and I'm courageous. He or she does not know that he's brave or courageous until the bullets start flying by. That's when his courage is really put to the test, okay? You might think you're a really loving person. Oh my gosh, I'm so good at loving. I've had, man, whenever people have come and stayed with me, I've been awesome with them, I've loved them, and, and they say how hospitable I am. I've never lived with anybody else, but I'm a great host or hostess. And then they come and live with you. Your loving nature is put to the test when you have to love somebody who's very difficult to love. I'm a real patient guy, you say. I'm a real patient person. And I can deal with a lot of stuff. I can wait in line forever and ever and ever at the doctor's office waiting for Harry Potter, waiting for Star Wars at Disney. I can wait a long time. Your patience is put to the test when you're put in situations where your patience is about to explode. How big is your God? My God is huge. You see me when I worship? Oh, my gosh. Ain't nothing holding me back. You only know how big your God is when you're put into the fire and your worship is tested. We can't say how big our God is based on what we're doing in here. We don't know how big our God is until until that's put to the test. It's not just social ostracism. It's not just a job, but he's also the sovereign over that empire. And he says, if you don't bow down to these other gods and compromise your worship, then your life is on the line. 
Not yet here in America, but all over the world, people are having to make that choice. Will I stand for God if it means my life is on the line? That's how you know how big your God is. I was meeting with somebody this week, and for all intents and purposes, her life is falling apart faster than you could say fast, and and all of these things are happening, and it's on many different levels. It's social, emotional, mental, physical. And at the end, what she was saying is, but you know what? I'm clinging to God for the first time ever in my life, like really clinging to God, really clinging to God. And here's what one of my professors says. We say this all the time. God, I'm not enough until you come. Uh, Won't you meet me here again? I need you. You're all that I need. You cannot know that God is all you need until God is all that you have. And you cannot say that God is all I have until he's all you've got. And only then can you be able to say that God is everything that I need. Your worship will at some point be put to the test, and that fire is going to test you. That fire can be persecution. That fire can be the loss of a job. That fire can be the the cancer announcement. That fire can be anything that happens. It can be something that happens in your family. But your faith and your worship will be put to the test, and you need to know that it will be. That's the first thing that we see. The second thing that we see, okay, second thing that we see is that you will worship in the fire if your God is bigger than the fire. You will worship in the fire if your God is bigger than the fire. If your God, if your fire is cancer and your vision of God isn't big enough to cover that cancer, then you're not going to worship in the fire. If your vision of God is not bigger than the the, the social pressure that you're feeling at school or at work, then it's going to be difficult for you to worship in the fire. When the worship of God in you is tested, you will worship when your God is bigger than the fire. So here, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are put to the test. Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, here it is. You're going to bow down. The music plays. You're going to bow down. And this is is how they respond in, in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you. If we're thrown in the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. They don't say, hey, hold up, king. Uh, before you play the music, let's, can you give us a few minutes to, to talk about it, right? Can you let us phone a friend? Can you give us a lifeline? Can you let us... No, he didn't, they didn't say anything. There's a conviction in their heart that has already, their mind has been made up, that come what may, we're going to worship God because God to us can save us from the fire. He's bigger than the fire in their eyes. And so their mind is made up. Hey, God can save us from the fire. Now kind of imagine, maybe they've got another friend who loves God also, but didn't stand. Or maybe there were some others. I don't know if they did or not. But I can imagine a friend saying, hey, um, guys, this is fire. <laughs> what if he doesn't rescue you? Like, you're dead. Like, what if he doesn't? Here's their response. Even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. God can do it, and he will. But even if he doesn't, we're still going to worship God. That's faith in the fire. That's worship in the fire. That's powerful. And it it made Nebuchadnezzar very angry. He burned with anger, and so he wanted the furnace to be as hot as his anger. Turn it up seven times more. 
he was so mad. Why? Because what they were saying in essence, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, we're not going to do it because our God is bigger than you. Okay, our God is bigger than you. And so he's hopping mad. Right? He's furious. Because you see, he imagines that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are like most people. Right? Most people would say, God is able to do it. Okay, God is able to save us from the fire. And if he does, we will worship him. That's how most people worship. If God, then I'll worship. If God pulls through, okay? If there is NED at our next doctor's office, no evidence of disease. If the report comes back good, if our child comes back to him, if our parents stop fighting, if these things, then I will worship you. But what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's not an if-then faith. If you do this, then I'll worship. It's an even-if faith that says even if you don't, we still believe that you are better than anything else that this life can give to us. What an awesome God they worship. Is that your God? Haven't we had times like this or you've talked to people like this who said, you know what, uh, I haven't seen you at church in a while. Yeah, you know, I haven't been at church. Why not? Well, I'm just kind of taking a break. Why, why do you need a break? Well, because I was really praying for this one thing and I prayed, I fasted for it, I, I did 21 days of prayer for it, I did all of these things and, and God didn't answer me. He didn't give me the job that I wanted, right? He didn't pull through for me and so I stopped going to church, But what about trusting God through everything? I did trust God. I trusted him, and he failed me. Could it be, rhetorical question because the answer is yes, but could it be that their faith was not in God, their trust was not in God, their trust was in what they thought God was supposed to do, and because he didn't do it, they no longer believed in the God that they thought they initially trusted? Because you see, at the end of the day, they tried to be their own God by dictating to God what he ought to do for them. And a lot of times, that's what we do. We say we trust. We say we trust. We say we trust before the fire. But when we're in the fire, we say, oh, God didn't pull through for me. What kind of a faith is it that these people had that said, God is bigger than the fires of my life? I would submit to you that it's not as crazy as some of you might think because we make these kinds of choices. In fact, many of us have already. Maybe not with God, but as it relates to who we're going to spend our lives with. And almost every wedding that uh, I've been to, the husband and the wife, the bride and the groom stand before each other and they say, you know what, I have found the one that my heart wants to give itself to for the rest of my life. Well, will you do that when things are going well? Of course I will. Will you do that when you got a lot of money in the bank account? Of course we will. Will you do that if there's food in the pantry? Of course we will. But will you do it when everything hits the fan and life falls apart? At that point, what bride and what groom would say, well, that's when I pull out. Here's who, the people who sign a prenuptial agreement maybe. But for the rest of us, we say in sickness or in health, for richer or for poorer, when everything is going well and when everything is going terribly, 
till death do us part. I will remain faithful because I see in my wife, I see in my husband someone that is bigger than sickness, bigger than poverty, bigger than the challenges and the troubles of life. I will remain faithful to him or her, come what may, because this is the one I've given my life to. Except Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are saying that about the God of the universe, that I can trust him because he will never, ever fail me. We can see the size of our spouse by how we deal with them in hardship, but do you see the size of your God in the midst of the hardship? Yeah, we can worship him when the answer is yes, but can you worship him when the answer is no? Sometimes our devotion to God becomes an if-then proposition rather than an even-if proposition. But we learn from men and women of old who are faithful. I remember hearing this week about an elderly man who was um, at an 8 o'clock doctor's appointment. And as he was going in and getting his checkup, he said, hey, I, I have a, a 9 o'clock appointment. I know that, you know, it's hard to rush appointments, but, um, yeah, I just have a, a standing 9 o'clock appointment. And so the doctor said, yeah, what kind of appointment is it that's uh, so important? You know, this is, this is really important that we make sure we get your vitals and all that stuff. He said, every morning at 9 o'clock, I go to the hospital, and I visit my wife, who's sick, every morning at 9 o'clock. And so the doctor said, what is her ailment? What is she sick with? And he, he said, she's got Alzheimer's disease. I said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. How long has that been? He said, it's been five years. I said, five years. Um, does she, is she aware of anything? Does she know? No, she doesn't know who I am anymore. So the doctor suggested for your health, I think it's better that you kind of do some other things maybe once a week, maybe once a month you can visit her. And the man said, I, I can't, I need to go. Like, I want to go every day to see my wife. And the doctor said, you know, with all due respect, um, why do you see her every day if she doesn't know who you are? And he said, even though she doesn't know who I am, I know who she is. And that's why I go, because I promised in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, that I will love you till my dying day. Because he saw in her that she was worth, well, he didn't marry her because she would make him happy. She didn't marry, he didn't marry her because she had a lot of money. He didn't marry her because she was a picture of health. He married her because of her. We don't worship God because of all the things he can give us. We don't worship God because of all the treats we can get. We worship God because he's God and because he's worthy and because he's awesome and desires and deserves everything that we are because he's given us everything that he is and on top of that continues to give us grace upon grace upon grace. Is your God bigger than the fires in which you stand right now? See, this is what Piper says. He says, when we give thanks to God, we're thankful. I'm thankful for my church. I'm really thankful for these guys. I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful for, uh, for salvation. He says, when we're thankful to God, we show the worth of the gifts, show the worth of our church, show the worth of our family, show the worth of our salvation. But when you're willing to suffer for somebody, you show the worth of the one for whom you suffer. Because nothing screams to a deaf world louder than suffering for the glory of God that there is a pearl of great price worth giving up everything for. How will the world see that Jesus is really worthy of all of these things? 
in the face of hardship, that if we declare with all of our hearts that in the midst of the fire, my God is bigger and he's able to save me, but even if he doesn't, there will be no other gods for me. The second thing that we see is that you will worship and I will worship in the fire when God is bigger than the fire. Third thing that we see is obviously they didn't get spared from the fire. But the third thing that we see is if God takes you into the fire, God leads you into the fire, then he will be there with you. And if God takes you into the fire, he'll be there with you. I can imagine, as you probably can, walking bound with your friends. If you're Shadrach, you're walking with Meshach and Abednego, and you're walking, and as you get closer and closer to the furnace, you're thinking to yourself, God, this might be a good time to make the furnace malfunction, right? This would be a pretty good time. Or as you get closer and closer, you're beginning to feel the heat as it burns the, the hair on your skin. God, this would be a good time for Nebuchadnezzar to say, hey, you know what, guys? You guys are pretty good. You've been working really hard, so I'll give you another chance. Or I'll spare you. Or I'll let you, just you three. Don't tell anyone else, but just you three. This would be a good time for you to do that, God. But as they get closer and closer and closer, they realize that's not going to happen. The king's anger is raging. And the fire is turned up so hot that it sucks in the people who are supposed to guard Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so instead of getting thrown in, it says that they stumbled, they fell into the fire. So there they are. And maybe people are saying, where's your God now? He ain't rescued you from the fire. You put your trust in him that he's able to save you from it. Verse uh, 24 King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three that we tied up and threw in? Certainly, O king. Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. The fourth literally looks like Elohim the son of Elohim, the son of our God. <laughs> Unbound and unharmed. If they thought that God was going to save them before the fire, but God said, I got a better idea. I'm going to save you in the fire. They thought that their deliverance was going to come before the fires touched their body, but God said, I got a better idea. I'm going to meet you in the midst of the fire. Understand this, the son of Elohim, most commentators, and I would agree with this interpretation, says this is a pre-incarnate, meaning before Jesus would come into the world 500 years later, a pre-incarnate manifestation of the son of God, Jesus, with them in the midst of the fire, okay? This was an angel of the Lord, he would later say, which in many instances was an incarnation of God himself, Okay? An angel is an angel, a messenger, but an angel of the Lord oftentimes is God showing up in the form of visible form to be with his people in their time of need. Don't mistake this reality, okay? While they were walking to the fire, there were three men. In the midst of the fire, there were four men. They come out of the fire, there were three men again. What is he saying? There are a lot of times in our lives where we don't see the presence of God, but it's when you need him the most that he will show up most clearly to you. 
There is a special kind of grace that is given to the people of God in the midst of the fire. And when you're in that fire, when you need his presence, the clearest, God has a way of showing up in the unlikeliest of places. I was visiting someone in the hospital yesterday, and they were saying as they look back on their, on their decades of life, they said there are many times in life where I ignored God, I didn't care for him, I didn't look at him, but I look back on my life, and every moment of my life, God was there with me. God was there with me. I have no other option but to run to him and worship. It was in those moments of hardest and greatest need that God was most present with me in that place. Are you going through a fire right now? If God has led you into that fire, then it's a certain promise that he will be with you in the midst of that fire. Isaiah 43 makes that clear. When you walk through the fire, when you walk through the water, I'll be with my people. Enabling you to worship in the midst of the fire. There are times in life where you just feel like, man, God seems absent from me, but it's when you need it the most that God will show up in ways that are so clear to you. I remember uh, hearing about this and just constantly being um, just, just inspired and, and moved by um, the story 12 years ago, July 2007, when some short-term missionaries from, from Korea went to Afghanistan, 20 Three of them went to Afghanistan. Um, the youngest was a 22-year-old young lady. But all of them were um, probably in their 20s or 30s, one in the 40s, one in the, a little bit older. But they went to Afghanistan to bring the gospel to people there, just on fire for the Lord and wanted to bring hope to them. And, and their bus got hijacked by the Taliban. Right? So they got, they got hijacked and they were held hostage and they were separated into groups of three so they couldn't all be together. And after about a, a week or so, the, their leader of their team, 42-year-old pastor, was, was executed, was killed. About five days later, five days later, a uh, 29-year-old man, part of that group was also killed by the Taliban. And they said, unless you meet our hostage demands, we're going to continue to kill them one by one. Right? These are people's children, people's brothers, people's sisters, college students, working people. And so a bunch of, you got to release these Taliban prisoners. you got to get your troops out of Afghanistan, whatever it was. Um, and the threat was, one by one, we're going to kill each of you. They were held in captivity for about 40 days. Um, no one else was killed. I think Indonesian mediators came, and they were able to serve as an intermediary and, and secure the release of these hostages. Um, Sixteen of them were females. Five remaining were men. They went back to Korea. And as they went back to Korea, they were talking about how um, each of them looked each other in the eye. And they said, live or die, we will honor Christ. Right? Live or die, we will honor Christ. And they talked about those times. They talked about the two who had been martyred for their faith. They talked about what it was like. And after uh, this moment of, of stillness and silence, as this moment of clarity, one person dared to say what other people said. We're thinking. I said, but you know what? In the midst of the hardest time in my life, I would do anything to be back in that prison in Afghanistan because I've never felt God's presence with me as intimately and as closely as I did in that time. I've tried, 
to seek that presence, to seek the intimacy of God in that way, but I've never been able to see that, never been able to experience that, never been able to feel that, and I would do anything to be that near with my God again. Because if God's going to lead you into the fire, he's going to be there with you in the midst of it. What is the fire that you be facing in your life right now? If not now, there will be fires to come because our faith will be tested. Either persecution or affliction in some way or another, our faith will be tested. And we've got to know that. And we've got to see that God is bigger. And we've got to know that even if he doesn't come through the way that we want him to, that he'll be with us in the fire. That was the confession of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who would not bow, who would not bend, who would not break, and who did not burn because there was another in that fire with them that day. And the promise of God, I will never leave you nor forsake you, is that he will be with you and me when we go through the fires of life as well, so that we might declare that our God is bigger and greater than anything that we face in this life. In death, in life, I'm confident and covered by the power of his great love. Do you believe that? Is your God big enough? to overcome sickness, big enough to overcome financial difficulty, big enough to overcome the dashing, the delaying, the, the, the dying of dreams. You will know the intimate presence of God in the midst of your fire when you believe that 500 years after Daniel, Jesus came into the world and he hung on a cross and he took on fire for you and me again, the cup of God's fiery wrath and there he was not unbound and unharmed there he was bound and he was harmed in the deepest degree he was crucified and he was speared and he was mocked and he was jeered he was ridiculed and ultimately he was killed on that tree in order that we might have hope and life on this earth and in the life to come and the ones who know the intimacy of his presence. It's not just anybody going through hard times, but it's those who put their trust in this Jesus and say, God, I need you. Fires will come to every person, whether you believe in Jesus or not, but the promise of his presence comes to those who have surrendered their lives to him and to those who have the nearness and the intimacy and the experience of God will enlarge your view of who he is so that you can worship no matter what because the end result is the same thing, the fire in our lives and the fire through our lives. At the end of this chapter, it was the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar who says there is no other God. Everyone in the nation, in the empire, must worship the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Your life, your life, becomes a stage for which God to take center stage so that people could see him in us and say, that's the God that I want to be my God. Let's pray together. As you pray and as you respond, what is the fire that's raging in your life right now? Maybe for some of us there is one. I would imagine that there are for many of us in here. There's a fire that's going on in your home. There's a fire in your heart there's a fire that's awaiting you at work tomorrow, at school. There's a fire to compromise and bow down to the gods of this world. You can have your Sunday, they say, but come and worship us as well. What's the fire that you're in right now? Let's pray. God, be bigger. Meet me in my fire. And for others of us, 
Maybe you're not there. Maybe things are going well. Maybe you're pre-decree Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You're advancing in your career. Worship is going well. Things are good. Let's pray for you and for the sake of those who are going through the fire. We've got to steal our children in the faith to be able to stand for Christ in this world. We need to pray. Yeah, let's pray not only for ourselves. Lord, prepare me. Be bigger, be bigger, be bigger in my life so that when the time of testing comes, I will declare that you are worthy. And then pray for those in here who may be going through storms or fires in life. Yeah, let's pray for that right now. Let's pray for a minute or two, and then I'll pray for us, and then we're going to continue to pray through some songs of devotion and trust. Let's pray together. If you want to pray out loud, you can do that. If you want to pray quietly, you can do that. But here, while it's easy, let's build spiritual muscle so that we can lift the heavy weights when we go out of this place. Let's pray together for a couple minutes, and then we'll continue on. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for truths that sometimes are not easy to hear, but truths that will be like armor placed over our lives so that in the midst of the battle, or when the battle comes, that we'll be able to stand and to stand for you. At the end of the day, we want our lives to be a reflection of your greatness for a world around us to see. We pray, Holy Spirit, you would fill us you would satisfy us, you would give us hope in life, and that you would help us to picture forth uh, the greatness of God, that making much of you, we would lead others to do the same as well. Thank you so much. We love you. We need you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.